It is my honor and privilege to stand before you this morning and give you what God has laid on my heart. We're going to be reading from Psalm 91, so if you'll take your Bible and turn there, I'll be reading from the analog version. Some of you I know have the electronic. (laughs) You get that? Okay. Psalm 91, my refuge, my fortress. He who dwells in the shelter of the Most High will abide in the shadow of the Almighty. I will say to the Lord, my refuge and my fortress, my God in whom I trust. For he will deliver you from the snare of the fowler and from the deadly pestilence. He will cover you with his pinions, and under his wings you'll find refuge. His faithfulness is shield and buckler. You will not fear the terror of the night, nor the arrow that flies by day, nor the pestilence that stalks in darkness, nor the destruction that wastes at noonday. A thousand may fall at your side, ten thousand at your right hand, but it will not come near you. Amen. You will only look with your eyes and see the recompense of the wicked. Because you have made the Lord your dwelling place, the Most High, who is my refuge, No evil shall be allowed to befall you. No plague come near your tent. For he will command his angels concerning you to guard you in all your ways. On their hands they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against a stone. You will tread on the lion and the adder. The young lion and the serpent you will trample underfoot. Because he holds fast to me in love, I will deliver him. I will protect him. Because he knows my name. When he calls to me, I will answer him. I will be with him in trouble. I will rescue him and honor him. With long life will I satisfy him and show him my salvation. The word of God, brothers and sisters. Psalm 91 opens with an overarching theme of trust. And as it unfolds, the hearers are led through a series of tumultuous events. Pestilence, terrors, arrows, lions, adders, and, well, tripping over rocks. Sounds like some pretty serious stuff, right? But did you notice that mixed in with all of that turmoil were little sprinklings of these assurances that God is faithful? These are assurances that God will and shall be a refuge and a fortress, and a deliverer. All right, so before we go any further, what do we know about this psalm? Well, we know that we don't know who the author is, right? Some speculate that it was Moses, but there's no evidence to ascribe the authorship to anyone other than maybe the Holy Spirit, right? The pen date is also a little sketchy. Uh, Much of book four was correlated around the post-exile time under Ezra and Nehemiah. This is the second chapter in book four of the Psalms that you've heard Pastor Scott talk about, how the Psalms are separated in books. And my favorite, it is often called the warrior psalm, because many countless warfighters, first responders, have used this psalm as an anchor when they're preparing for battle, whatever that battle looks like. I know I did, and we'll talk about that a little bit later. The title of my sermon is Trust, the Final Frontier. So let's talk about the idea of trust just globally for a second. 
people in general will build a foundation of trust on their history, their experiences in life, and sometimes build it upon the hope that they have for their future. We place our trust, or at least are asked to or expected to trust in things like other people, family, friends, fellow church members, the people running our government, and the list goes on. We are often disappointed by people, aren't we? And when that trust is broken, what occurs is we feel a little bit squeamish when we read a psalm like this that says, God is saying, hey, trust me, I got this. Some of us may secretly think, do you really? As we unpack Psalm 91, we'll notice that it's a no-brainer that God is trustworthy. The more difficult part of this is that sometimes people shift their trust from God toward other things. And that's where we get ourselves into trouble. So watch this idea as we go through and explore three main points. First, in verses 1 through 6, you're going to see God's building his foundation that he is a refuge. Next, in verses 7 through 10, we'll see God's redemption. And then lastly, in verses 11 through 16, we'll see God's reward. Now, before we go any further, and because trust in general can be widely applied theme, let's look at how Scripture uses the word trust. Now, if you use an, an ESV, you'll find that the word trust is used 85 times, 83 in the Old Testament and twice in the New Testament. There's roughly 15 variances of its use. Now, in particular, in Psalm 91, it is used only once in verse 2 when it says, My God in whom I trust. The use of trust is in verse 2 is the Hebrew word batak. This means to have confidence in, be bold, or secure in. The idea here is that you can place your trust in God with confidence and can speak of this truth with boldness and security of its truth. Here's how that was put to the test for me years ago. I was deployed in Iraq. I was inside the green zone, and we were preparing to come home. Now, because of my mission parameters, we had to travel by helicopter, and it was always at night. The place where I was bunked was pretty active airfield, and uh, it made sleeping a little more difficult. So we knew that there was just really a lot of activity going on. People used to say, how'd you sleep over there? I said, oh, I slept like a baby. Uh, woke up every two hours screaming. <laughs> so on that night, we loaded our bags and, and ourselves into the helicopter, and within minutes, we were airborne. Seconds into that ascent, though, the helicopter started to sway wildly, and we're all grabbing hold of something to, you know, to keep ourselves from flying around inside of this thing, and I'm, I'm looking out this little window at nothing but darkness and thinking, okay, this is going to flip over, or it's, the blades are going to hit the ground, and none of that was a good scenario. And I remember as parts of my life flashed before my eyes, thinking, well, I guess this is how I die, all right? And all of this is happening in just a few seconds, but it seemed like it was just stretched out, all right, if that's ever happened to you. I looked at the, the pilot, and the pilot was trying to do his best to right the, the ship, and then we were down on the ground, landed pretty hard, but it was, at least it was on all fours. Seconds later, again, we were up and off we were going to Saddam International Airport. We landed there safely, and a crowd of people were running over to see if we were okay, and thankfully we were. Um, 
But I remember thinking, God, this has to be something that you can use for me because I was pretty scared. Um, Luckily, the pilot knew what he was doing, and he's probably encountered things just like this. We found out later that another helicopter had landed right as we were taking off, and it the prop wash took all the air that we were using to try to, to move up. I mean, all that phys- physics stuff, I have no idea what that means. <laughs> that was pretty selfish, if you ask me, you know what I mean? Yeah. So, as you can see, I had no control over this helicopter or even the outcome. But I had to put my trust in God that as I crowd out to him in this dark time, he would hear me and he would be my refuge and my fortress, my God in whom I trust. So, now that we have a solid basis for the notion of trust as it's used generally and as it's used in Scripture, let's look at our first main point, God's refuge. How can we know that God is trustworthy? That he would be a refuge when we needed one? That foundation of trust is clearly found in the one who is responsible for providing this refuge. To highlight this, look at verses 1 and 2. The author affirms the depth and the breadth of this trust by using four distinct names of God. First, you see, and they're, they're underlined for you there, the Most High, which is El Yon, meaning none higher than He. That means we don't have to look any higher than God, right? The next one is the Almighty, El Shaddai, which is loosely translated, God who is more than enough. The next one is the Lord, or Jehovah, and this is the proper name that the Hebrews use for the one true God. And then finally, the ever-popular God, Elohim. What the author is likely trying to intend here is that God serves as his own evidence that he can be trusted. As such, the reader is likely left with the conclusion that, as his name indicates, he is all-sufficient to be trusted and to be our refuge. Now, before we move on, I don't want you to miss something. There's a condition here. You'll see this several more times, too, so take note as we go through this chapter. Notice that the author says, He who dwells will abide. I want you to see this as an an affirmative tone, which indicates action on our part. You've heard pastors say, you know, some participation required. Well, here it is. In other words, when you dwell, which means to sit, in God's secret place, right? if you look at other versions, they use secret place, you will abide, which means to find rest. So sitting in God's presence, you'll find rest. Now, is the inverse of that true? If you're not sitting in God's presence, you won't be at rest? Well, maybe. And there's been plenty of times I could tell you about. Not sitting means no rest. So Jesus takes this one step further, as recorded in John fifteen seven, And it says, If you abide in me, and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish, and it will be done for you. All right? Think about that. So what does this mean, to abide? If we said abide means to find rest, if his words are finding rest in you, you will find rest in him. What's most interesting about that is before you go buy a lottery ticket and ask whatever you want. Uh, Know that when you abide in him, your request will likely be lined up with God's word and his will. Amen? One way to look at this is to consider the opposite. So when we're not at rest with God, 
our actions may look a little different. In some ways, we're hoping God turns a blind eye to as we engage in sinful behavior. I'm imagining this condition where nowhere near being at rest with him. Okay, so now that we know that God is trustworthy, why in the world do we even need a refuge like this? Why would I need to find rest in him anyway? I mean, aren't I the master of my domain? Aren't I in the, one, the one who's in control of what happens to me? I mean, after all, I'm, I have this desire, inborn desire, to be self-determined. And by the grace of God, America has made me independent. All right, so I have all the makings of someone who is setting their own course. But let's take a look at the next set of verses. Notice in verse 3 that there's a fowler's snare set. Now, there's four characteristics to the fowler's snare, and if you have the insert uh, that came with the bulletin, you can feel free to jot these down. First, snares are not obvious. So what good would a snare be if it was in plain view of the birds? Of course, they wouldn't go anywhere near it. Likewise, though, for us, life snares may not always be obvious. They are, fortunately, in plain view of God our Father, which is what makes that connection to him very important. Secondly, snares are adaptable and individualized. So in other words, what snares one person may not be a problem for you at all. Additionally, what didn't used to be a problem for you, you now, now may haunt you at every turn. Many of us have said at one time, wow, would you look at those Christians over there doing, you know, whatever. I would never do that, right? Yet years later, we find ourselves locked into this temptation, or maybe even actually doing this very same thing, right? Third, snares are enticing and pleasurable. We find ourselves locked into some destructive behavior because it feels good, or it benefits us somehow, and and we've made enough excuses for it that it no longer feels like a snare. Somehow we've convinced ourselves that we deserve this thing. I could give you some examples of addictive behavior, what we allow ourselves to do when we're angry or lonely, how we drive on the highway, Uh (laughs) what our search histories would reveal on the internet, and you could fill in the blank for yourself. Lastly, snares often come with decoys to appear safe. We'll say something like, ah, what's the harm? It's only one small lie. How bad can it be? It's just one little glance. I can control this and stop anytime I want to. One question, and I'll move on, because it looks like some of you are a little nervous. What has ensnared you? All right. Think about it for yourself. Personalize that for you. And while you're pondering this, here's some good news as the scriptures move on. His pinions and his wings have never been ensnared. So if we're under his covering, uh, then you have nothing to worry about other than what we'll talk about here in just a minute. All right. Jesus showed us this in, in, in living color. He was tempted in every way that we could be tempted, yet without sin. He remained under the refuge of God's protection. How, you ask? By his obedience to God's word and his will. Turn to Luke chapter 4. And we'll see how Jesus dealt with some very tempting snares. This is going to be in verses 1 through 13 of Luke chapter 4. 
while you're turning there. Most of us know this story. This is when Satan tempted Jesus uh, as he was led up into the wilderness after being baptized. And he was there 40 days, right? So certainly he was hungry. The first way Satan tried to snare Jesus was to appeal to his hunger. He challenged Jesus to prove his deity by turning stones into bread. Now, that might not be a big temptation to you, unless there was a cow nearby and you could have some butter. See, we're going to have some trouble, right? But this didn't faze Jesus at all. The next snare was to promise Jesus fame and fortune in exchange for his worship of Satan, right? Not getting anywhere with that one, Satan tried one more time, and this time he used God's own words. Look at verse 9. Verse 9 says, As he, And he took him to Jerusalem and set him on the pinnacle of the temple and said to him, Hey, if you're the Son of God, throw yourself down from here, for it is written, He will command his angels concerning you to guard you, and on their hands they will bear you up, lest you f- strike your foot against a stone. Okay, wait a second. Am I hearing this right? You mean to tell me that Satan quoted scripture? And he's doing his best to quote my, my chapter. What in the world? That's verses 11 and 12, by the way. And yes, he was using scripture to try to trip up Jesus. No pun intended. In typical fashion, though, he takes it out of context. He, his intent is, is not to do something willfully dangerous and expect God to intervene. Right? Stand in front of a train and say, oh dear God, take me away from the this train here. That's what Satan is trying to get Jesus to do. And so I'd ask myself, how many times have I done that? Hmm. How does Jesus respond? The same way we should. And Jesus answered him and said, it is said, you shall not put the Lord your God to the test. And when the devil had ended every temptation, he departed from him until an opportune time. You'll notice that each time Jesus faced a temptation, He answered it with scripture, not his opinion, not a defensive or hasty remark. I just wonder, if Satan knew scripture, it's funny how he missed that part that everything he was offering Jesus was made by him, right? So let this be a lesson for us. As we learn to build our trust on God's refuge, let us be reminded that we too can find protection in the safety of his wings. Consequently, if you believe his word and trust his sovereignty, then the notion of fear should not enter your vernacular. Whether it's day or night, darkness or light, God is your refuge and strength. So that brings us to the end of our first point, that God is a refuge for his children. As we've established, trusting in God implies that your sights are set on him and not your circumstances. Because our circumstances certainly can lead us astray and cause us to waver in our faith. So now let's look at the role God plays in redeeming his people. And and a little bit more, in the next set of verses, the author gives us a glimmer of the gospel and the redemptive work of Jesus. Within these verses, we see certain assurances. It will not come near you. No evil will befall you. No plague will come near your tent. In a literal sense, we'll take these assurances and find rest in them. We quote them, we repeat them in times where our faith is weak. We offer them to others who are struggling. 
We hold fast to them as we find ourselves facing difficult or dangerous situations. One more war story and I'll let you go. I was in Afghanistan and I was in a convoy and uh, we were, I was riding in an up-armored vehicle. But this was still a pretty tough time in the, in the region and so uh, I was taking my own step to protect myself. I was wearing flak vests. I was actually sitting on one and I had one next between me and the door because I trusted the body armor too, <laughs> right? So here we were on our way to the airport and blows past us a garbage truck, kind of what you'd see here with the, the curved back and all. And then it does a T-bone in the street about 100 feet ahead of us. Of course, we screeched to a halt. Everyone's grabbing their weapons because we're thinking we're going to a firefight. And I'm imagining all these scenarios of Taliban coming out of the back with RPGs and AKs and all of that sort of thing. And so we were just on ready, right? Just as soon as he stopped, did a backup and came back the other way. I'm like, you know, so all of that comes down and I'm thanking God that nothing happened. I, I, was, I was wishing that, well, I was thinking, well, maybe this is how I die, right? Uh, some of my colleagues were uttering some colorful metaphors and I was thanking God that nothing happened, right? I was thinking, well, if I could be anywhere else but here, that would be great. Well, maybe not a helicopter, but I'm just saying. Yeah. But the kind of stuff that runs through our minds when we're faced with our own mortality, where do we turn in those times, right? Now, I was thinking of things like Psalm 91, God, you're my refuge, my fortress, right? Maybe you're like me in that I can read Psalm 91 and I can be led toward or have an expectation that nothing bad will ever happen, right? Uh, I'm, I'm certain that you and I can both attest that that's not true. But I know people, and maybe you do too, that verses like these in Psalm 91 mean that because we're Christians, we'll have a trouble-free life. Look at your neighbor and ask him if that's true. Or maybe what this looks like is that we get upset with God when crummy things happen. Well, we shouldn't be surprised. In fact, Jesus stated just the opposite in John 16, verse 33, the last part of that, that he said, in the world you will have tribulation, right? This may sound contradictory to the assurances that we heard, but I submit to you that when you abide in the shadow of the Almighty, nothing will come near you, now hear me, unless allowed by God. Maybe that doesn't sit well, but we don't always understand this either. And we have to ask ourselves, why is this tribulation come my way? In reality, it might even be my own fault, right? We get ourselves in trouble when our disobedience takes us out from under his wings and leaves us open to whatever awaits us outside of that protection. We willingly move out from under his protection when we are self-determined, wanting our own way, in our own timing, and here's what some of us do. We're tempted to blame God. How many times have you heard someone say, well, why did God let this happen? Why would God not stop this from happening? Now, I know this is not something we can solve on a universal scale because so much of what happens to us is individualized. But here's one takeaway. We know that these assurances are true, what we've been talking about in the first set of verses. And I want you to see that God desires your participation as you live your life. 
Notice the beginning of verse 9. Because you have made the Lord your dwelling place. Now, if you hear something again, some participation is required, you'd be right. Other translations use the phrase, if you make the Lord your dwelling place. Now, the word if sounds even a little more emphatic, doesn't it? So, in light of that participatory component, let's look a little deeper into this phrase. Hebrew ears would have likely heard the term dwelling place and projected images of the tabernacle, the dwelling place or the secret place of the Most High. And they would have known that this is a very active way of seeking the presence of God or drawing near to God in the tabernacle. They know this place as an intimate and holy and safe refuge, a place where sins are forgiven, where relationships are restored. Here's the gospel message, folks. Where's that tabernacle today? Right? It's not a tent that's erected every time we move. That dwelling place is in our hearts if you're a believer. Amen? It's at the very innermost part of us. This is the dwelling place of the Most High, sealed by the Holy Spirit. And is your guarantee until the day of redemption. So friends, if you can catch this, you can live your life without fear. You can trust that whatever is before you is no surprise to God. Think of it this way. What good is a refuge if there's no guarantee of its resilience? What good is a guarantee if there's no longevity to it? There's no more trustworthy guarantee to our redemption than the seal of the Holy Spirit. You heard Elder Ashby read Luke 23, verses 44 through 46. I'd like you to turn there. This is the model that Jesus gave to us to follow. Luke 23, verses 44 through 46. Here's the picture. Jesus was on the cross. He had endured hours of torture, ridicule, and now he had been hanging there for a few hours. This probably was one of his darkest times. What would have been your attitude at this moment? Not many of us could have mustered the strength for even a whisper, but look at what the verse says. Jesus, calling out in a loud voice, said, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. And with that, the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords died. Notice that he said that he commits his spirit into his Father's hands. Now, commit is the Greek word paratithemi, which means to entrust. So get the picture. At the worst possible moment of his life, Jesus, knowing that his body was about to give out, placed his spirit into the hands of the only thing that mattered, the only thing he could trust, the only thing he could count on, his father. This was on the heels of him asking, God, why have you forsaken me, right? Remember that? Pretty tough times. This had to be some very low and grievous moments. Nevertheless, you see what he did as his body expired. His spirit was released to the father. Let that sink in. Amen. Now with that, we come to the end of our second point. 
we've talked about what it looks like to have God as our refuge in point number one. And we've talked about the guarantee associated with acts of obedience. Not talking about salvation there, but about the protection that's afforded to us as we obey God's word. And if that doesn't bring you hope and joy, it's about to get better. God can be trusted at his word. And his word says that there is a reward for those who trust him. And that brings us to our third point. God's reward. Look at verse 11. God assigns his angels to guard you in all your ways. As simple as stubbing your toe to finding victory over the fiercest and deadliest of adversaries. Now I know I've given my guardian angels a run for their money. I can even imagine they were probably two assigned to me and they would tap out when one got tired. And maybe, maybe you're like me. I don't know if that's true, but I guess I'd be amazed to know what I've been spared from, what I've been protected from, and you probably would be too. This idea is what Satan was trying to do when he was tempting Jesus. He could get Jesus to follow through with testing God. That would have been a sin. Game over. Jesus would have had to start all over again, back to the beginning. Now move on to verse 14, and notice this, that it starts with some quotations. Who's talking here? It's God, right? God is speaking. I imagine we should probably play some close, close attention to this. Notice also that it starts with a conditional phrase, once again, because he holds fast to me in love. Now, hold fast is the Hebrew word chasak, which means has attached himself to me. And again, later on, you see, because he knows my name. Now, we talked about God's names as they were used earlier. And I would imagine the author is affirming this foundation of trust. Now, you know, you've heard pastors say the Hebrews placed a lot of emphasis in someone's name. So there's no mistake happening here. Here, too, the author is quoting God, emphasizing that knowing his name is vastly important. His names can be trusted. Listen to what he says. God says he will deliver, protect, answer, be with, rescue, satisfy, and show his salvation. I don't know about you, but that excites me and brings peace to my soul. This is trustworthy. So that closes out point three. Now, what does this mean to us today? What truths can we glean from this song? Now, I've given you some things to ponder already, but here's just a few more. First, trust is our biggest challenge. I, I can feel like a, it can feel like a final frontier as our title explores. Unexplored territory, sometimes a little fearful. Many of us struggle with trusting others. And trusting God because, well, people have let us down. Other Christians have offended us. And, well, maybe sometimes we feel like God has let us down. Certainly our history informs our willingness to give trust to others, right? And sometimes we subconsciously just derive this level of trust that we give to others because maybe we don't even trust ourselves. Think about it this way. When you're alone with your thoughts, where do they go? The truth is, we know what we're capable of. 
maybe given a lack of inhibitions or a sense of accountability to someone. And, and maybe that's not uh, something we'd readily admit, but this is why we're instructed to guard our hearts. Right? Proverbs 4.23 says, Keep your heart with all vigilance, for from it flows the springs of life. Take every thought captive and determine how this line of thinking will play itself out. If it leads you farther away from God and His purpose for your life, let that thought die on the vine. Next, obedience to God's Word affords us His protection. Parents, haven't you told your children to remain obedient to the house rules because there is an implied protection in it? Sure we have. When you remove yourself from that protection, you're asking someone else to determine your consequences. When you break the speed limit, you're willingly accepting the speeding ticket, right? And I'll just go one step further. The damage is done when the act occurs, not when you get caught at it. Let that sink in for a minute. In the same manner, when we sin, we willingly open ourselves to the consequences of that sin. Not only could there be a natural consequence, but there is always a spiritual consequence, a fractured relationship with God. Right? Even so, beloved, we're reminded that the Holy Spirit, who dwells in your secret place, urges repentance. And this repentance steers us back to a right relationship with God. Somebody say amen to that. Lastly, God is the covenant maker, which makes him the covenant keeper. You don't have to earn his favor, his grace, or his salvation. He chose you before the foundation of the earth and loves you with an everlasting love. This love is unconditional. Look at it this way. God has already seen everything you will ever think, say, or do. He has seen the end of your life as it was played out in a movie. Yet he is with you today, even still. That should bring you some comfort. Let me read to you the bookends of Psalm 91, the first verse and the last verse. He who dwells in the shelter of the Most High will abide in the shadow of the Almighty. With long life will I satisfy him and show him my salvation. That says it all right there. You don't have to earn his salvation. He will show it to you. What's more, if you believe he is sovereign, you have to believe that whatever he allows is for your good and his glory. So let your actions reflect your faith and your trust in him and not your fears. So what have we said? We determined that trusting in God, regardless of the circumstances, is the virtue of a mature Christian. By unfolding the truth found in Psalm 91, we saw that, number one, God is our refuge and our fortress. One who can be trusted, not only because of what he said, but because he has demonstrated it over and over again in and through the life of Jesus, and hopefully your own. Our second point was an exploration of God's redemption. We traced the thread of the gospel message of redemption through the life of Jesus and demonstrated how God, through his Holy Spirit, 
takes up residence in the Christian's dwelling place. In our last point, we heard God speak of his role in the covenant with his people, how he will act in reference to the promises that he's made. My prayer for you is that you take this psalm to heart, apply it to your own situation, in your darkest hour, or even in the simplest of interruptions. Remember to do as Jesus did and use God's word as your answer. And when you find yourself standing at the cusp of any of life's final frontiers, put your trust in the one who loves you more than you love yourself. He can be trusted.